3: good evening and welcome to exposure i'm abby newton and it's a pleasure to be with you tonight i hope you stayed safe and enjoyed your st patrick's day this weekend campus was filled with students decked out in green drinking their green non-alcoholic beverages of course and shouting go green but now back to reality Today on the show, I will talk to Kent Dell, an Army veteran and student at Michigan State University. Later, the Council of Graduate Students will talk to us about their organization, and the Peace Corps dropped by for a visit, and Professor Charles Ballard will help us understand the sequester. But first, let's talk about the new Pope. The Catholic Church has selected its new leader, Pope Francis. Our very own Mary Hathaway was actually at the Vatican over spring break and gives us the full story.
4: On March 8th, the College of Cardinals met to set a date for the conclave to elect their new pope. I was in Vatican City as cardinals, media, and tourists alike buzzed with anticipation in St. Peter's Square. Everywhere you looked, there was makeshift scaffolding for the excessive amounts of media, extra police and Swiss Guard patrolling the square, and, if you were in the right place at the right time, you could see a steady stream of cardinals walking the length of the square into the Vatican as the cardinals attempted to walk through the square they were mobbed as if they were pop singers people swarmed each cardinal in their red and black attire hoping for a picture an autograph or maybe a blessing after each cardinal walked by onlookers would whisper i wonder if he is going to be the next pope as i walked through st peter's square i met four americans Ginny wallace mary Finsky, and ray gerges from wisconsin and colleen middleton from north carolina who were thrilled by their
5: vacation timing? We're we were excited. disappointed when we found out we didn't have a pope. I mean, that was a letdown because we wanted a pope, papal audience. But at the same time, there's more excitement with the what's happening and seeing the cardinals here. <laughs> we yeah, even yeah. Seen <laughs> we've, we've been seeing them walk. We've been taking pictures, and yes. he just walked through and he actually waved to us.
6: Yeah. One of them. Yes. Like, I mean, this is a huge opportunity. If they pick the right person, I mean, it could set the stage
4: for decades. So mm-hmm. I think that's important. These women were echoing the feelings of almost every person in St. Peter's Square. No matter the language that they spoke, everyone was anticipating the events that would soon transpire. Then, just one week later... On a rainy Wednesday night just two days into Conclave, white smoke billowed from the sistine chapel chimney signaling to all watching that the catholic church had a new leader moments later the crowd in st peter's square once again erupted in cheers when it was announced that cardinal bergoglio of argentina was elected he would now be known as pope francis i MSU freshmen Rachel Sullivan and Jen Beckner were, to put it mildly, overjoyed by the news. Oh, we were really excited, just we, in general, about We literally Pope. <laughs> ran up and down the hallways singing, singing We've about Got the Pope. a Pope. It was just a great day. And they were not the only ones to be excited by the news. The Catholics in Latin America were especially overjoyed by this election due to the fact that Pope Francis is the first Latin American ever to hold the papacy. Pope Francis is bringing many firsts to his holy office. He is also the first Jesuit Pope. A Jesuit is an order of priests within the Roman Church. But even with all of these changes to the papacy, Catholics are elated with their new leader. This includes MSU senior Derek Peterman.
2: I was very excited, um, just because every time it's a new pope, it's a time of renewal for the church, no matter who it is or his background. Um, and it's always exciting when there's change in the church because the church tends um, to change slowly. And um, I think this pope will be very good for the times that we have because of his humility, but also his connection to the modern world.
4: Now, almost a week into his reign as pope, many are asking what type of Pope Francis will be. The cardinals saw almost immediately that this pope was going to be different than those before him. After Pope Francis greeted his followers in St. Peter's Square and was headed to dinner with the other cardinals, His Holiness made an unexpected choice. Instead of getting into his papal motorcade for the first time, he dismissed his car and insisted on riding on the bus with the other cardinals displaying the humility he is so well known for later he even displayed his humorous side at dinner after many toasts were given in pope francis's honor it came time for the pope to give a toast he simply raised his glass and said may god forgive you for what you've done to which the room burst into laughter but jokes aside pope francis seems to be the kind and gracious pope that many catholics had hoped for including katie diller who is Director of Student Outreach at St. John's Church's Student Center. And like many Catholics in the time leading up to, to his election, I was praying for whoever the new pope would be and asking the Holy Spirit to send you know, a pope. Um, and particularly what I was asking for um, in my prayers was someone who would um, be as loving and pastoral to everyone. As Jesus was and I prayed for someone who would be like that Um, and I believe that in Pope Francis um, we, we have someone like that so I was overjoyed. Undoubtedly starting today at Pope Francis's inauguration mass and going forward the world will be paying close attention to this new papacy and how he leads his 1 billion followers. Mary Hathaway, Impact News, the Vatican.
3: Kent Dell is a Michigan State University student who is a finalist for the Beinecke and Truman Scholarships. Before coming to Michigan State, he served in Iraq for 27 months, where he was a paratrooper in the Army Parachute Infantry. He received the Combat Infantry Men Badge and a Purple Heart. I sat down with him to talk about being a finalist for the scholarships and about his time in the military.
0: I mean, well, first of all, it's, it's a huge honor to be nominated by Michigan State and, and, and by, by the Truman Foundation and by the uh, Spurring Hutchinson Company, which administers the Beinecke Scholarship. Uh, so it's, it's it's definitely an honor. And, um, it, you know, it's it's just, I guess it's cool to have recognition for some of the stuff that I've been doing.
3: Can you kind of highlight what you've been doing during your career in college?
0: Sure, yeah. Uh, so um, after I left active duty, I signed with the Army Reserve. So I'm actually an ROTC instructor as well, so I do that part-time. And uh, it's kind of neat because I get to see some of the the cadets that are in my classes, you know, see them actually in a professional professional manner. Um, But on top of that, too, I'm also involved with the MSU uh, Chapter of Student Veterans of America. Um, I'm actually leading that organization this year. And uh, also last year I was uh, president of MSU Tower Guard, which if... uh, I'm sure many people don't know what Tower Guard is, but it's actually the oldest running student organization on campus. It was founded in 1934 by uh, May Shaw, who was pr- uh, wife of then-president Robert Shaw, and its, it's sole purpose is, was then and still is now to serve uh, st- students on campus with visual impairments and, and uh, other students who need assistance in, in classroom activities, making MSU accessible to everyone.
3: You know, again, you are an Army veteran, and you spent 27 months in Iraq We received the Combat Infantry Men Badge and a Purple Heart. Congratulations, by the way. Now, what was your experience like in Iraq?
0: Uh, well, first I would say, it's kind of a joke, congratulations to the Purple Heart, is, uh, you know, I didn't exactly earn that, you know, the <laughs> enemy kind of earned that for me. It's a big running joke. We call that the uh, the enemy marksmanship badge in the Army. we we'll um,
3: write that down for next time. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean... Iraq was, uh, Iraq was a big part of um, kind of developing, like, who who I was. And and the way I looked at it, too, and the reason I joined the Army, I, I didn't really look at it from a political... It wasn't political for me, like, whether I agreed with the war or didn't agree with the war. I mean, I've seen, uh, you know, our country's involved in two wars, and here I am, a military-aged person uh, capable of, of joining the military. So for me, it was, like, what can I do to help? And um, I know I had some pushback from my father saying, you know, you know, you, you did well in school, why don't you go to college? And, you know, I remember my response being to him, uh, that, you know, well, the army needs people like that too. I mean, um, that's what it takes to, you know, make good decisions on the ground and get g- good policy forward. So, you know, we, we make the right choices. Um, so for me, like being involved in Iraq was, was it was kind of an eye opener, um, from that perspective too, of public service. And, and, uh, there, my first tour uh, was two thousand and eight two thousand nine since I, I was in the parachute infantry as with charlie one five o five of the eighty second airborne and um so for me that was there was, was quite a bit of fighting with that and um it was uh it was a real stark real- stark difference from when I went back in two thousand eight and two thousand nine uh which was uh very calm and as someone in an infantry unit and the eighty second isn't you know you know, I'm going to talk them up real quick. 80 second isn't just any <laughs> infantry. You know, we're parachute infantry. We're we're supposed to be, you know, like shock troopers. So to take somebody in a unit like that, in we were in Baghdad at the time, and then and then a little area southeast of it, and to uh, to go from what it was in 2006, 2007 to a couple years later, in 2008, 2009, where I didn't I I didn't fire a single round, never felt in, in danger of my life the entire time I was there. It was real. It was really a, a um, kind of um. Made me think about what what happened there, um, and that kind of drove my interest in, in, in public policy and economics. Because one of the big things that we did in two thousand six two thousand seven was we started, uh, we started helping build rebuild the economy through through like security. You know, um, through that whole experience, kind of melded my thinking in, in like economic and in public policy, and um, that you know that's where I am today, and that's that's why I chose the, the career path that I'm that I'm aiming towards, and why why I'm involved with like Truman and Beinecke.
3: Okay, and what is that career path?
0: Um, I want to, okay, I want to, I'm getting a degree right now in public policy, uh, and afterwards I want to get a master's in public policy. So, and public policy for... Um, for people who are outside of uh, Department of Political Sciences, I like to say it's it's a good mix of, like, uh, political science, so you have, like, your theory and your research, and public administration, so you understand how, like, uh, state and federal agencies work and how they operate, and also economics, so you understand, like, how markets work and how economic policy uh, uh, can, you know, affects the economy. So it's a, a mix of those three things. So it's kind of like how to be um, a good, like, a uh, uh, government administrator almost, mm-hmm. um, and someone who would come up with the types of policies that, you know, Uh, essentially like would you know rebuild the economy of iraq um of course i want to do that at the at the state and local level my interests lie within the state of michigan um but yeah so that that's kind of how it it all came together for me
3: okay and what's your dream job then
0: my dream job Mm -hmm. is uh i would love to be a state legislator for the state of michigan um i want to work as a policy advisor first and you know help you do research and and do policy up at the up at the state capitol but uh i would love to actually be a representative
3: Okay. And how did your experience in the Army really enhance your education and, I guess, your decision to go back to school and get an education?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, the GI Bill is a major part of that. Uh, it, it provided the, uh, the funding for me to go back to school, which is really nice. Um, um, I'm actually the first person in my family, uh, my immediate family, to go to university. Um, so that's, that, that was a big part of it, um, um, but of course, that didn't that didn't happen until after I was already in the military. So it was deci- it was definitely a deciding factor to go back to school once my military service was up. Um, but also, like, like what I could have said when going through Iraq and seeing the policies and how how things took shape and how the economic development took shape, that really made me decide that you know the power of economics and in, in good policy. Um, so that that's that was that's how i you know that was the most inspiring part i think and the way the military kind of shaped me the most and of course you know just just being involved in 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 real world you know policy you know the military is an arm of the american foreign policy so being involved in real world policy and and uh, uh kind of gave me um a little bit of experience and and kind of a, a res- I guess respect for for the um for the the program the public policy type programs
3: and back to the scholarships, um, I guess, what set, what do you think really set you apart you know, to be a leading finalist, other than your involvement in the military, of course? I
0: think, and I'm, I'm not one to like brag about anything, <laughs> I really, I'm really not, but I think what it was is through my application, I think people could see that I, I am somebody who's dedicated to public service, and I am somebody who's about putting the public good above my own. Um, and I'd like to think that I portrayed that by joining the military and and through my experiences and you know be part of the military and I'm not and I'm not just saying this as a cliche way but like literally like while I was there you know my friends and I we would have died for each other and in fact some did and you know I you know I've I bled my friends have bled and so it, it's just it's a mentality that you that I can't I mean it's either instilled in you through the military or you enter with it or it's someone, you know, you're the kind of person that's drawn to drawn to the military. And, um, so I think in my application, it, it kind of showed through, it kind of shown through that this is the kind of person I am. It's like, it's in my blood. It's not just, you know, it, it sounds nice and something I'm involved with part time, but it's, it's who I am. And I think that's what was portrayed.
3: Okay. And what was the application process like? Because these are huge scholarships, you know, national scholarships. So it has to, had to be yeah, extensive. Um,
0: yeah. the uh, Actually, uh, I'm going to say, not that the Beinecke was an easier application, but I had already been prepping for the Truman, so when I went to actually apply for the Beinecke, a lot of my past experience working with the Truman Scholarship helped me out. So I was able to formulate a... An application fairly quickly with that, but a lot of it kind of built off what I was doing with Truman um, but my Truman application started probably about a year ago really? um, and I was thinking about it and trying to get things ready before that and I, a lot of writing a lot of writing and rewriting um uh, interviews and today i just I just came back from a practice interview where you know i i get i got a, a, a grilled by honors college and faculty members from across the campus so it's it's been a really challenging experience and um, um, but it's been rewarding too and i th- And, you know, I have to give credit to um, all my faculty advisors and the Department of Political Science and uh, all the people over the RCPD and and especially the Honors College. Honors College has been wonderful about helping me with this. And, you know, honestly, without the Honors College, I would have never been able to come this far.
3: Well, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about is you're doing an honors thesis investigating the factors that influence veterans to use or not to use their education benefits. Can you talk about that?
0: Sure. And I haven't collected any data yet, so I can't make any inferences, (laughs) of course. You know, that would be bad of me. Um, But – uh, what what really interests me uh, as a veteran, as somebody who's used, using the GI Bill, I see how wonderful it is and how, how well it works. Um, and uh, for me, it's really empowered me and, and given me the opportunity to come back to school. But on top of that also, um, I, have a South, I have a house in South Lansing um, with my wife and child. So, you know, not only is this, you know, giving me the opportunity to get an education and, you know, it being an economic driver for the economy but also it kind of helps with uh, it puts money back into the local community through like you know we, we bought a house and we're improving the house we're improving the property value that's one of the problems with the housing bubble and uh, and recovering from that so for me the the gi bill kind of portrays like a low-hanging fruit to speak in economic terms and that um i i have inferences why some people wouldn't use it but to me um, i want to i want to know why in each veterans you know cost benefit analysis what it is what what costs are the ones that are highest enough to offset that benefit of going back to school. Um, and I think, um, as someone who's of public policy and someone who want to do public policy research in the future, this is a really important policy question. Because uh, we've had GI bills like this in World War II, which essentially paid for uh, all of, of, of a veteran's education and gave them a stipend, and well, so and, and it helped. I mean, it helped drive our economy through the 50s and 60s. Um, so for something that's... Pr- can, um, Perceivably, be done again in the future, another GI Bill in the future, this is something that we, we want to look at so we can mold that policy to uh, be more, um, I guess you can say, uh, fit veterans' lifestyles better. Uh, because this can have a huge effect, and this can really help our economy. And I, I see the potential in it, but you know, I also see that there's possible faults that's, that's holding it back.
3: When you were in the army, uh, did a lot of your fellow soldiers want to go back to school like you, or what was kind of the age and the education standard
0: of that? Well, uh, for anyone who is enlisted, uh, you, you need at least a high school education or, or a GED. Um, officers have all been to school already, so uh, most people that I, I was with in, in, in counter besides officer leadership um, was other non commissioned officers and other soldiers. So we had a, most of us just had a high school high school education, um, and so the thought of going back to school is kind of kind of nerve-wracking, I guess. Um so but a lot of veterans did. I mean, a lot of veterans wanted to go back to school because of the GI bill. And um and it really was a, a from the friends that I had, it really was kind of a cut down the middle either you're going to stay in the military or you're going to get out and go back to school. So um, maybe it was just uh, uh the perceptions I got from my unit uh that you know most people everyone almost everyone I knew went back to school if they didn't stay in the military. And like, I guess that kind of also spurred my interest in, in why some people don't use the GI Bill.
3: And so what was it like trying to immerse back into school and the whole education realm when you're a freshman and you're a lot older than the other <laughs> 18-year-old kids who are coming in here?
0: It was really weird. Um, I got confused for a grad student a really? couple, of th- couple times, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Then my professor would see me be like, oh, you're in my political science 200 class? <laughs> 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 yeah, but uh, um, it, you know, I I can see how it's difficult, and, and most veterans and not to extrapolate, but you know, from my own pets, my own experience, some of the people I know, most veterans kind of come to school and they just want to get their degree and get out. Know, I mean, they're very driven, and that's that's what I'm here to. my degree, I'm here to get on, I'm, I'm older than everyone else, I don't really fit in, but um, but for me, I mean, that was like I was like that too. And but for me, with the Student Veterans of America, the chapter here, that's what kind of got me involved with other student organizations. And uh, well, a good friend of mine, um, he uh, uh, he sat next to me in one of my uh, in my ISS class, and he says, "Hey." You're you're veteran, right? And he's like, Yeah. that's how you tell. He's like, Oh, the haircut. <laughs> so it gives me away. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, he got me involved with that group, and you know, through that, I became the the ASMSU rep for student veterans. Then after that, I got involved with Tower Guard and other organizations. So, um, so for me, the transition has not been bad. But the reason why is because I got involved with student organizations, and and I didn't really see myself as just the old guy who can't have friends amongst the other college students. But that's not true. There's always going to be someone out there. Who, who's like you? I mean.
3: Well, thank you very much for coming in. We wish you the best of luck on your scholarship. Um, you have an interview, March twenty fifth in Chicago, right? Yep, okay. and that's for, that's
0: for the Truman. So okay. that'll be uh, that'll be my uh, my finalist interview. So that's the that's the whole cake, so to speak.
3: Well, we hope you get your dessert. <laughs> well, thank
0: you very much. I appreciate
2: that. You're listening to
1: Impact Exposure on
2: eighty nine FM.
3: The Council of Graduate Students exists to improve and advance graduate education in order to ensure the vitality of intellectual discovery. They represent and serve the graduate students at Michigan State University. I sat down with a few of its members to discuss the importance of the organization.
7: My name is Stephen Fletcher. I'm a uh, second-year PhD student in the Higher Adult and Lifelong Education Program, and I'm the president of COGS.
8: Hi, I'm Denecia Sikiroga, and I'm the new VP for External Affairs of COGS.
1: Hi, my name is Lexi MacMillan uribe I am a PhD student in human nutrition, and I am the director of event planning. Okay, and what is COGS exactly? You hear it a lot around campus, but not everybody knows.
7: Sure, so uh, COGS stands for the Council of Graduate Students. Uh, basically, uh, COGS represents the 11,000 graduate and professional students uh, here at Michigan State University. Uh, that includes students at the College of Law, as well as uh, uh, off-campus medical students up in uh, places like Grand Rapids, Detroit, Macomb County. Uh, we're in charge of advocating for graduate students on a wide range of issues, uh, providing uh, uh, services and different funding opportunities for them, uh, as well as as uh, 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 in general uh, just trying to meet their needs while they're uh, advanced degree candidates at MSU.
3: What services do you offer?
7: Uh, COGS, uh, one of the key services we provide, and, and it just got uh, renewed, with, uh, uh, is a shared service that we provide with ASMSU, and that is legal services to graduate and professional students. Uh, that's uh, uh, one of the uh, more, uh, quote, popular services <laughs> uh, uh, for students to, uh, to utilize, and, and certainly uh, 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 that's been in existence for over 30 years now. Uh, with uh, with both the undergraduate and graduate student governments uh, uh, co-sponsoring it. Another key service that we provide is the discounted parking permit program uh, with the City of East Lansing. Uh, that's a program that was introduced two years ago uh, in a, as a collaboration between COGS uh, and the city and that's been really popular especially with graduate assistants on the north end of campus uh, because GA permits only uh, really allow you to park south of the campus. So for those folks who work late at night in their labs or uh, teaching, Uh, having a shorter distance to walk uh, walk, uh, works out for them and it also helps the city in terms of uh, uh, providing some revenue there.
3: And now you're, um, Dion, you're the Vice President of External Affairs Yes. and so you guys, you know, it's different COGS because you represent students who aren't necessarily on Michigan State's campus. So how is that challenging for you and I guess what do you do in your position?
8: Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, we are fortunate enough where we have a lot of different campuses now, both the medical schools um, and Grand Rapids, Detroit areas now. And, um, you know, with technology the way it is, we are doing things such as using telecommunication, um, things like that. But we're also extending a lot of our activities um, to those sites. Um, We recently had um, a Detroit... uh, hockey game, or <laughs> Red Wings, right? And um, where um, many of the medical students who are from that area, as well as the ones here, were able to um, go see a game um, discounted um, through that. So, but yeah, that's definitely
7: a very important thing we want to keep connected with.
3: Okay. What are some upcoming initiatives that you guys have?
7: Do you want to talk about Graduate and Professional Student Appreciation Week now?
1: Sure. That is (laughs) an upcoming initiative. Um, We have definitely ramped up a lot of the events that we're doing throughout the year, uh, one of them being Graduate and Professional Student Appreciation Week, um, which is packed full of different events. On Monday, we're doing a cooking demonstration at McDonald Hall. Um, On Tuesday evening, we're doing our trivia nights, which are very popular at um, Dublin Square. (laughs) And, <laughs> for two reasons, they're popular. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else? We're, we're giving out um, ice cream coupons as well as uh, coupons for Chipotle, and we're providing discounts for students to go see American Idiot at uh, the Wharton Center as well. No, there's much more events than that. So we're okay. going to be sending out flyers, and these events Fier. they're open to uh, graduate and professional students and their friends and family. That's awesome. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now,
3: what is the structure of Cogs like?
7: So Cog's uh, has departmental representation a little bit different than say ASMSU. Uh, So every single graduate department on campus uh, has a representative uh, assigned to it, Uh, and then the professional colleges each have a representative as well. Uh, So the board can get up to uh, if it's uh, full about sixty to seventy people. Uh, That's in addition to the executive board, uh, which is comprised of eight individuals, uh, two of whom, uh, well, two of whom are appointed, basically, one from the College of Law, uh, given the unique relationship with a private law college here at Michigan State. Uh, When that relationship was formed, uh, um, COGS worked very hard and and, uh, the faculty and administrators to make sure uh, that the students in the Law College would be represented by COGS. Uh, And so that's uh, part of the actual uh, uh, College of Law contract with Michigan State. The other is uh, an appointment that's made by the Council of Medical Students. Uh, They are a body that uh, is similar to Cog's, but for med students in vet med, osteopathic medicine, and human medicine, uh, and uh, Coms collects a tax through Cog's uh, uh, that uh, provides additional services for the medical student population. Uh, so, along with uh, that executive board representation and your typical uh, officer groups that have a president, vice president, uh, uh, treasurer, etc., uh, that's uh, kind of the basic structure we're looking at
3: or an undergraduate education and a graduate education are a lot different. And another thing is too, you know, the undergrads, some of them live on campus, they're a little bit more accessible, whereas graduate students, a lot of them live off campus in different areas. So how do you gain accessibility to those students and truly represent them, I guess, per se? Okay,
8: I guess I'll take that. (laughs) I had the fortune of going to undergrad here also and now i'm in both the medical program and a phd program here so i just i'm going to be here for the rest of my life i feel like <laughs> <laughs> Which is go smart not, yes, <laughs> not a bad thing but um but it's absolutely true the um the type of services and things that undergraduates are interested in um are obviously very unique from uh, that of graduate students. Um, also, sometimes it comes with uh, certain things, like a graduate student's more likely to have a family by the time they go back to school, uh, maybe children, things like that, which is why we, we do include things like um, child care grants, um, maybe offering events too that are tailored more towards um, other aspects of life, or um, towards certain things that may be more ubiquitous to all graduate students, such as getting grants, Um, right now or preparing yourself um, for a career uh, whether it's in academia or um, something else like that but um, you know we have a great website I think we do a really uh, good job I'm not in charge of that part of uh, (laughs) putting out uh, all the different things that are available which is really a wide spectrum of things so hopefully even if it might not tailor to one grad student it's going to tailor to another one that we have.
7: Yeah, one of the one of the things I, I will add, though, is is there are um, uh, certain items that are similar uh, uh, of interest, uh, you know, no matter graduate or undergrads. Uh, I, I'd say Cog's has a very unique relationship in the Big Ten when it comes to the work that we do with the MSU Athletics Department. Um, you know, what we've been able to uh, work out with them is is specific seating for graduate and professional students at football, uh, as well as looking into possibilities for other sports. Uh, that relationship has really grown over the past two three years and again is something that you don't always see uh, at other major campuses. Uh, graduate and professional students uh, uh, you know love to go and see football games, love the tailgating, uh, love the whole atmosphere that comes with uh, I think Big Ten athletics uh, and are very supportive no matter where they that they've been as undergraduates uh, so that's one thing that we've always uh, constantly work with the athletics department to, to foment here. Yeah?
3: And, Stephen, you've been president for quite some time, and you just got elected for a fourth term, correct? Uh,
7: that, that, is, that, that, <laughs> that is correct. Uh, thank you for making me feel even older than I, I do most days.
3: How does that feel to be president for four years? And I guess, what is your proudest um, achievement that COGS have, has done in those four years, or three years, I guess, now?
7: Uh, yeah, I'm, I think, uh, um, you know, I've been very lucky to be president for, for a long time. Uh, I've worked with, uh, uh, you know, very, very talented individuals uh, uh, who have been, you know, sitting in the, the seats that uh, Lexi and, and Dion have sat. People have put in a lot of work uh, like these two have on behalf of graduate and professional students. Um, I think if you look at the growth of COGS for that time, the real trademark has been uh, the partnerships and collaborations with different on-campus groups and entities. Uh, You know, we partner with everyone from the Vice President for Finance and the Provost's Office to put on the Graduate Academic Conference now to make that a self-sustaining event so that that isn't um, an increase that we would have to try and assess on graduate students to put that on. Uh, So we partner with uh, those academic offices uh, all the way to to the Greek community uh, on Safe Halloween and an upcoming uh, charity volleyball tournament that we have at the end of the month uh, to benefit the Special Olympics. So I'd say that the growth in COGS's visibility uh, is one, and then two, the amount of people and and individuals, groups, offices that we've partnered with in order to make sure that there's a constant uh, amount of services and that those services are sustainable uh, that's, uh, I think, some of my, you know, fondest memories. But it's also the little things. So car- we'll occasionally get cards from students who have been funded to go on conferences, mm-hmm. uh, and they share their appreciation because without that $300, they wouldn't have a- been able to go to, you know, Wyoming or Kentucky or Las Vegas. I wish I could go to Las Vegas uh, <laughs> uh, some days. But, uh, you know, those sorts of uh, smaller things are also what's been very uh, uh, I've been very blessed to, to be a part of.
3: Is your name engraved on the door yet?
7: <laughs> uh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, no, no. They're, 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 like I said, I, I've been. Uh, a, a lot of people have done a lot of good work, uh, and I'm, uh, you know, I, um, uh, I'm just happy to be a part of it. So.
3: And one last question I have, or what are your future goals for, I guess, the rest of this year and the upcoming year?
8: Well, I guess I'll start. Um, so I'm new to the executive council, but um, this is the end of my second year where I've been a, a rep for COGS. So I'm just kind of walking in now to um, learning about a lot of these issues. But um, one of the things that um, I like to focus on, and I think a lot of people in COGS want to, is looking at a lot of the um, The issues that are going on in general in our nation and the state with graduate education and undergraduate education, you know, there's a lot of big changes that are going to happen with both um, the budget issues, which has (laughs) been going on for a while. Um, Can we talk about
3: that later in the show? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's
8: great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Affordable Care Act, which will affect, you know, health care for everybody, but also for graduate students um, there, and also just uh, representing graduate education as a whole um, to the nation, so
7: those are definitely things we'd like to focus on.
1: Um, well, I am on my way out, but um, congratulations! I c- Thank you. <laughs>
7: Lexi's name is also engraved on the door. So-
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, but you know, I would like to see these events continue um, as Cog's gains more recognition among graduate students. I would like to see more enthusiasm um, as uh, students learn that these events are available to them, and it creates a venue to uh, meet other people outside their um, their own discipline.
7: Yeah, I'd say for uh, for me it's a, a couple of things. There are some some major issues uh, if you look at the short term on campus uh, related to, uh, you know, what are the, the increases going to be in student health insurance next year. Uh, that's big for a lot of students, undergraduate and graduate alike, uh, that we're going to be looking at. Uh, you have the the upcoming search for a new provost. Uh, that uh, I, you know, um, everywhere I go, I try and say it's important uh, that uh, student representation uh, uh, be at its optimal. There, it's obviously a, a position that's central to the faculty, uh, but it, it it has a lot of impacts on uh, students, but also graduate students specifically because of uh, uh, advanced degree candidates' uh, um, research portfolio generally and the contribution that's made to MSU as a research engine. Uh, So those are two short-term pieces. Uh, i'd say you know f- for me uh, uh, you know it's about a, a good transition uh, uh, um, you know if you look at uh, uh, you know this time next year i 'd like whoever is is in the seat next year to say you know uh, uh, my job is is eighteen times easier uh, because of the work that's gone on previously, and that uh, you know we've built a-, a good resource base, we have a lot of good events, and it 's about constantly making sure uh, that the eleven thousand plus grad students here uh, know about those events. And- and- and feel, uh, you know, welcome and really want to engage uh, with their peers outside of just their departments. Uh, So that's uh, uh, some of my goals uh, this upcoming year is making sure uh, that uh, I fulfill that promise to the council uh, uh, so that uh, my successor is is fortunate enough to have as uh, as blessed time as I have in the seat.
3: Maybe he'll stick around for four as well. I don't
7: know. Uh, uh, yeah, no, no. Oh, well, he, he or she might do. It yeah, might yeah. be fortunate. Maybe five.
3: Right. There you uh, go. Uh, uh, You'll start a precedent. Yeah,
7: Abby, maybe if you're a graduate student in a few years, you could be in this seat.
3: We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you guys very much for coming in. We appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks
1: for having
3: Abby. us. Recently, policy on immigration has been a big discussion topic in the federal and state government. Impact's Miguel Martinez reports on immigration issues and legislation.
9: Illegal immigration in particular has been a highly controversial problem with the number of estimated illegal immigrants living within the United States peaking in 2007, at around 12 million, according to the New York Times. After years of debate on how to properly take care of the issue, Obama promised to make it a priority of his in 2013. This promise quite possibly won him the election as President Obama received 71% of Hispanic votes in the 2012 presidential race. With talk of Obama's potential new reform and his work with Congress to provide a solution for the immigration issue, I took the time to speak with the Director of Immigration Law Clinic, Veronica Thronson, about legislation regarding immigration.
5: Well, as you may know, there have been a few uh, proposals. Right now, but that are pending, but nothing has become law yet. The president uh, has his own proposal where the idea is to try to get status for the 11 million undocumented immigrants we have in the United States. And what's good about this change right now is that we have bipartisan support.
9: While there is no concrete immigration law in place yet, the government has taken action in regards to immigrant children who were brought here at a young age.
5: The deferred action uh, child arrival, that's DACA. So uh, the idea with that is that the government knows that these kids are in the United States, and the whole point is to say, okay, we know you are here undocumented, but we are going to defer any action on your case. We are not going to deport you. You are going to be a low priority.
9: The DACA program would issue eligible youth a two-year work permit and open to them opportunities which they would otherwise have no access to.
5: Uh, The point is to help these people who were brought here without any fault of their own to be legal, at least for a while, to be able to, you know, access an education, access, I mean, higher ed, uh, access other services that they may uh, need.
9: After President Obama signed the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals memo in June 15, 2012, many young immigrants waited eagerly to apply. Finally, on August 15, applications began. One of the young people affected by this program was high school senior Diana Sandoval.
10: I applied for this program in September, and I got results in late sometime November saying that I was eligible to apply for a license.
9: While getting a license is something most of us do at around the age of 16, Diana never felt she would be able to get hers. This program will allow her to do many things most of us take for granted.
10: Well, first of all, I'm going to be able to drive, you know, go out and be with friends. Um, It's also given me the opportunity to apply for college, have a job, and just be, you know, do things that I I couldn't do before.
9: After applying and getting accepted into the DACA program, Diana was disappointed to find out Michigan was one of the few states that would not be granting driver's licenses or state ID cards to DACA beneficiaries, according to a brief given by the Secretary of State on November 26th. This position was later reversed on February 1st of this year. The initial reason for denying ID to program recipients was because of a law prohibiting the granting of licenses to individuals who are not lawfully present in the country. This changed, however, when in January federal guidelines were released stating that DACA recipients are in fact considered lawfully present. This news filled Diana and her family with tremendous joy, as expressed by Diana's mother, Olivia.
5: Pues sí, para nosotros fue una gran alegría porque nos teníamos que separar de ella porque estábamos pensando en mandarla a estudiar a México y ya con esto pues ya ella puede...
9: Olivia states that they were all overjoyed with the news as they were previously thinking of sending Diana to get a university education in Mexico where they would have to have been separated from her. With the DACA program now in effect Diana will be able to stay with her family and continue her education here in the United States. Like Diana, many immigrant youth will now be able to receive a higher education as well as get jobs and legally drive. With around 11 million illegal immigrants currently living in the United States immigration is an issue that can be postponed no longer. While no agreement has been reached on a reform yet, the DECA program is a great step towards solving our immigration issue. It is now President Obama's responsibility to work closely with Congress and come up with a new proposal that can satisfy both parties in order to finally take care of the illegal immigrant dilemma. With Impact News, I'm Miguel Martinez.
3: MSU Today reports that for the thirteenth time in a row, Michigan State has earned a spot on the Peace Corps' annual list of top volunteer-producing universities across the country. I spoke with Peace Corps campus representatives Elizabeth Hunt and Marissa Rinkus about the Peace Corps.
10: I'm Elizabeth Hunt, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Niger. Um, I'm Marissa Rinkus, and
6: I
3: was a
10: Peace Corps volunteer in Guatemala.
3: Okay, so first off, what is the Peace Corps?
10: The Peace Corps is a twenty-seven-month commitment through the U.S. government where the U.S. government pays for your flight over and you live and work in a community and address their needs. Um, you get three months of training and then two years of service. And why do you feel the Peace Corps is important? I think the Peace Corps is important because it helps, first of all,
6: it helps the U.S. Um, have a different um, perception of other countries, and it helps other countries understand more about the U.S. as well, but for volunteers, it's just really a life-altering experience. It really helps you to get a perception on life and the world. It changes your perspective on on what you want to do with, with your life and helps you really understand people of different cultures and different places and, um, you know, attempt to really make a difference in people's lives While while at the same time they make a difference in your life, too. Right.
3: What was your experience like in Guatemala while you were in the Peace Corps?
6: My experience, I think, was amazing. Yes, you know, there's ups and downs and not every day is an excellent day, but most days uh, were wonderful. I met an enormous amount of people from all walks of life. I had the opportunity to work with young children um, in environmental education and school teachers who were really interested in having other resources and opportunities and bringing new opportunities to their kids, and I was very happy to be able to help them with that. So that was the most probably fulfilling aspect for me, but also just the friendships that you make and the opportunity to travel and meet new people, learn a new language, uh, try new foods. It's all uh, a great opportunity.
3: And could you see a difference when you first arrived than when you left?
6: Some of the differences, yeah. Some things are really small. I think uh, it's very hard to say I'm going to change the world in two years. Um, but you definitely make an impact on individual people's lives, and that's what I think is really important. So I think inspiring, inspiring people, children, to continue on with school, um, inspiring teachers to... Uh, be more innovative in their classroom and helping them. I really saw myself sort of as a facilitator and a, a middle person to help people find resources that were not available to them otherwise. So they would express a need or an interest, and then I would go about trying to find um, how I could get that to them or connect them with the right person. And so I think that it definitely um, helps people get other exposed to other experiences and opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise. So I think that's a big difference. And I know um, I recently met uh, a man from Bulgaria who said he found out I was in Peace Corps. And he said, that's amazing. I was taught by Peace Corps volunteers my whole um, childhood, elementary school, middle school, et cetera, And now he is studying in the U.S. as a, ma- a master's degree in architecture. And he just, you know... I'm sure that if, you know, he he wouldn't have had maybe that opportunity had he not had the experience with Peace Corps volunteers, with Americans, got to learn English, and, you know, he was very grateful to them, and he just said that he really appreciated everything that volunteers had done for them. And I think there's a lot of individual stories like that that maybe the individual volunteer never hears about, but, um, but they do, but they do happen.
10: And what was your experience like in Nijar? It was very similar and yet very different. I was a health volunteer, so I worked with um, mostly my village women and then women from the surrounding communities in a health clinic, and we worked on improved weaning, porridges, oral rehydration therapy, and um, and then I worked on some water sanitation projects on the side. Um, and then I extended for a year, actually, and then I got a job in the capital city in the national hospital working with women who were injured during childbirth. So I had both the rural and the city aspect. Um, I lived in a mud hut. I didn't have running water or electricity, just like Marissa. Um, yeah, you just make really good friends and you work on projects that your community wants to do but aren't sure how to navigate the process of funding and things like that because we know how to do that. And so um, that's really my role also. it was mm-hmm. just a middleman. And but, I did have running water and electricity. You did, sorry, <laughs> and an indoor toilet. So just to demystify, oh, yeah. that. to demystify right. the
6: Peace Corps myth. Not everyone lives in a mud hut. True. Um, some people live in apartments and cities, and some people do live out in the country. So it's really yeah. varied. Um, the yeah. experiences that people have are really very different. I had the a world. hot water
10: heater in my apartment in the city, which was really nice during cold season. <laughs> so like yes, hot showers. <laughs> showers are nice. I think so.
3: (laughs) What interests you to join the
10: Peace Corps? I was my senior year and I was kind of thinking I didn't really want to play the um, get a job game here in America and so I and I knew I wanted to make a difference and I knew I wanted to travel and I knew I wanted to do something that was just completely different than what everybody else was doing and so I decided to submit an application to Peace Corps and it worked out. I knew
6: that I wanted to eventually go to graduate school, but at the time, I was sort of at my wit's end with school, and I thought I can't be in another classroom right now. <laughs> and um, and I had actually heard about the Peace Corps when I was in high school, kind of randomly through a friend, and it had stuck with me, and as I got older, I kept looking into it and reading about it, and I just thought, this is something I want to do. I've never really thought of myself as having like a calling in life, but if that is... That's probably the closest I could think of as a calling, because I just really wanted to do it. I just thought, this is exactly what I want to do, and I couldn't exactly explain why. But I definitely wanted to learn another language, and I wanted the opportunity to travel. And you know I wanted some time to figure out who I was as a person and what I wanted to do. And I definitely was interested in, you know, I was really interested in the environment and... Helping people in natural resources and those types of things. And so I think I thought, well, this is an opportunity where I can use these skills, um, you know, hopefully to make a difference in some way, uh, but really just get that hands on field experience that can be hard sometimes in the US when you are a recent grad mm-hmm. to really get um, a lot of hands on experience and responsibility. So Peace Corps definitely yeah. gives you a lot of responsibility a lot of autonomy and, um, you're left to, to do a lot on your own. So you earn, you learn a lot about, um, you know, having to, having to work with community and how to plan projects on your own and do all of these things in a completely different language and culture and environment that you've never been in. So I think that really sets the bar pretty high um, when you come (laughs) back. So that's, so it, so it turned out to be, you know, a a great opportunity in and of itself, but it also really helped me afterwards.
3: And is college-age students the norm in the Peace Corps? Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. the
6: average age right now is 26.
10: Yeah, I think so.
6: For students, so the oldest serving volunteer is 83. Wow. Um, She had a birthday sometime in the fall uh, because we posted it on our Facebook page. (laughs) Uh, And I think that was her second Peace Corps service. And your minimum requirement is that you're 18 years of age and a U.S. citizen, um, but the majority of volunteers have a bachelor's degree and, yes, are you know right out of undergrad or soon afterwards. Um, and then there are a number of retirees or other people who maybe didn't earn a bachelor's degree, but they have significant life experience in a particular area okay. um, and that kind of thing. But the majority are still
5: mm-hmm.
6: still wide-eyed young.
3: <laughs>
6: Bushy tailed <laughs> Americans out there to, to to genuinely people that genuinely want to make a difference. So, um, mm-hmm. which I think is which is important, um, and it really helps helps everyone learn how how difficult that
10: can yeah. be. It is the best experience that I've had so far in my life, for sure. And it taught me a lot, and it gave me a lot of time to think about myself. I can't imagine not doing Peace Corps and then going on in life and not having that kind of that cross cultural experience, that all of that kind of things that I had, those friendships that I have now, both American and um, Nigerian. And so, I wanted to get other people excited about it because it was really it was a great option for me. I agree. It's the best thing that I've ever
6: done up to this point in my life and um, something that I'll never forget. It's a very unique once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I feel very privileged to have had. And I encourage people, if they have ever thought about it at all, even a, a little glimpse in their mind that they should really think about learning more about it, coming to talk to us or you know, watching a video online or something like that and find out you know, find out more if they really think it's for them, and mm-hmm. and even start the application process. Because if you can make it through the application process, you're you're on your way. It's it's uh, quite an arduous task. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's definitely your first test. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, how can students get more involved and learn more about it?
6: Yeah, well, we have an office on campus in the International Center, room two hundred two. We hold off office hours. They can find the information on the MSU website, on the Peace Corps.gov website. Um, on our MSU Facebook page, um, where we also post information about current MSU alumni who are serving abroad that send us pictures and have blogs and give us updates. So that's always fun. And then we also hold general information sessions every month. And our next one is on March 19th.
3: Okay. And one last question. How do people integrate their experience with the Peace Corps with their future career path?
10: Um, I think it's really easy Because um, you learn so many skills in Peace Corps that are also just general job skills that um, you already are kind of a step ahead because you know how to do those. Like Marissa was saying, it's really hard to find a job in America with a lot of responsibility right when you get out. But um, in Niger, you have all, or in Peace Corps, you have all the um, responsibility. And so you can come back, and um, employers look very favorably upon that kind of thing. And then Peace Corps has a lot of. career workshops and all that kind of stuff. Um, during your last three months of service, someone comes in and, and helps you out with all of that. We had some people from the embassy, from the United States Embassy, come in and um, help work on our resumes. They told us ways to spin our, our experience and things like that to get jobs in America. And then um, grad schools, there's a lot of fellowships and things like that, both sanctioned by Peace Corps but then also just... Um, by looking around on the websites and things like that, Um, people really like Peace Corps volunteers. So Mm -hmm. um, you learn language skills and all that kind of thing um, and how to live in a different country. And I think we have a very globalized, we're going towards a very globalized workplace. And so um, any kind of cross-cultural skills that you have, really yeah. important and you learn to do a lot with a little and mm-hmm. i think that
6: in it's in today's lot. world everyone's looking for people who can do a lot with a little and who are self-starters who can you know really make something from from nothing and take that responsibility and be creative and you know fundraise if you have to or you know get the leadership that you need or the champions so it definitely um you know puts you to the test and that can show I mean some of the things I'm amazed at some of the volunteers um, that come back now and when I Mm -hmm. see the resumes I thought I was pretty good with some of the things that I was able to do but um, some volunteers now are you know having creating these large projects where they're working on you know providing water to a whole community or even um, you know training hundreds of teachers or doing all kinds of things that are pretty amazing. Peace Corps is partnering, partnering too, with a lot of international agencies around the world, so you also get that experience of working with other international development, people from the U.S. and other countries, and learn about those projects firsthand, which is, of course, good for networking as well. Um, And you understand how, how these projects really work on the ground, which can help if you're interested in doing international development, but also a lot of volunteers come back to the U S and decide, you know, that, um, they really want to make a difference here in the U S and they start NGOs or, you know, lead NGOs or run for Congress Mm -hmm. and lots of return peace Corps volunteers that are, you know, representatives at the state level or at the federal level. So, um, I think it translates in 100 million ways. And it <laughs> just depends on, the, on your individual experience and what you make of it.
3: Well, thank you, Marissa and Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Now back to
3: Impact Exposure. Sequester, a word that has constantly appeared in the media across the country. But what exactly is the sequester and how will it affect us? Michigan State University economics professor Charles Ballard visited the studio to give us the answer. So first off, can we break down this sequester? What is it? Can you just go step by step what this big thing is?
2: It's the result of a series of budget crises. You know, we've had one sort of crisis after another in Washington for the last couple of years. We have this thing that we impose on ourselves in the United States that no other country has, where we have this debt ceiling, a limit on how much debt the the government can have. Um, And that means that when you get to that ceiling, you've got a manufactured crisis ready to be exploited. Uh, In the summer of 2011, there was some danger that we would not... Go not raise the debt ceiling. And if that had happened, that could ultimately have been catastrophic because if the U.S. were to default on its government debt obligations, that would be a disaster of the first magnitude. That didn't happen, but there were these painful negotiations. And they said, okay, we're going to set up a committee of Congress to try to work out a, a longer term deal. And if they don't get their job done, then the sequester gets into into effect. So the sequester was designed as a bunch of budget cuts that would be so stupid, so painful, so awful, that the fear of it going into effect would lead the, the authorities in Washington to act in a responsible way. That didn't happen. So we didn't reach a budget deal in November of 2011. So then that said, Okay, the sequester really is going to happen, and it was going to happen on January 1st. Um, Then we had another crisis as as the clock ticked down to the so-called fiscal cliff. Mm -hmm. And by the way, fiscal cliff is what we called it in January, uh, December, leading up to January. Sequester is what we call it now. Sequester is fiscal cliff 2.0. This is just a continuation of the same sort of thing. So in January, a bunch of things happened. Payroll tax holiday ended. We got higher taxes on about the top one percent of American income uh, recipients. Um, and then they kicked the sequester can down the road two months and they said, OK, March 1st. I actually thought that they would make a have a big showdown and reach a deal on March 1st and then kick it down to May 1st and then kick <laughs> it. Down. But in fact, the sequester did go into effect and it involves 85 billion dollars of uh cuts to some spending programs it's a very narrow portion of the budget so it's not the whole budget Uh, but it's 85 billion this fiscal year and then increasing amounts in subsequent years leading to a total of 1.1 trillion over the next 10 years if it doesn't get altered and i think that's a huge if i think it's quite likely that it will be adjusted somehow
3: Okay. And there, leading up to this, there was so much dispute between the Republicans and the Democrats in, you know, in Washington. So what was the final, I mean, do you think this continued dispute will change and alter the budget, you know, throughout these 10 years? Or what do you think, I guess, your foreseeable
2: future? Well, I'll give you my perspective, which I don't think everybody agrees with. But I think what's happened in the last uh, decade or two is that A portion of the Republican Party has become dramatically more conservative than it was before. Um, So really, you have almost three parties. You have the Democrats, you have the moderate Republicans, and then you have the Tea Party Republicans. Because a portion of the Republican Party has gone so far to the right, there is a much bigger gap between the ideal world of different people in Washington. That's made worse by the gerrymandering of legislative districts, which means that most congressional districts are safe seats and if it's safe for one party then the only election that matters is the party primary and then if you're in congress you're you're at risk to a a a challenge from the the fringe of your own party anyhow i think we're much more divided than we used to be and how will that work out well we may get a grand bargain i think most responsible people most grown-ups hope we get a grand bargain whether we will is not at all clear because the kind of world that many republicans envision and the kind of world that many democrats envision those worlds are quite different uh... they're similar in a lot of ways uh, there are glimmers of hope but uh... it's not going to be easy by any means
3: and who will be most affected by these budget cuts
2: the budget cuts as i said are are they're fairly narrowly targeted they're not at all uh uh widely spread across the budget uh, in fact one of the ironies is that the part of the budget that everybody agrees is the biggest concern which is medicare and medicaid that is almost untouched there are some very small cuts to medicare there's nothing to medicaid social security is untouched um about half of these cuts, and so that that means that for dealing with our long-term problems, the sequester is really not very effective. And what it does cut is some of the programs that I at least think are most valuable. Head Start, um, Emergency uh, um, Disaster Relief. Um, research national institutes of health you know that will adversely affect cancer research um national science foundation and then half of it is in defense half of it is in the department of defense that was the part that was designed to make it uncomfortable for conservatives because many of those folks would like to cut domestic programs but they're less uh, likely to want to cut defense well even that didn't didn't work at getting a deal
3: Okay. And education-wise, how will that be affected by the um, budget?
2: Um, There will be, for for instance, Head Start. There will be some reductions in Head Start. That will mean that some... Mostly low-income children won't have a slot for them. There, there, there might have been a Head Start program spot for them, and now there won't be. Um, so there are some program cuts to uh, programs for students with disabilities. So, special needs students, some of them will not get the kind of assistance that they would otherwise have had. Um, the uh, the Energy Department is cutting is cutting some money that may have some effect Uh, oh the centers for disease control and prevention so a, a lot of these are not directly related to education but they could have some spillover effects um in terms of michigan state university researchers may have research grants with some of these uh groups um I think it's a little too early to know for sure, because the sequester only went into effect a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. But um, those are the kinds of things. And
3: what is your biggest concern with the sequester? If you could pinpoint one thing.
2: Oh, one thing. Well, it's just incredibly meat-axe. It takes a meat axe to some of the most valuable parts of the budget, and it doesn't. It leaves untouched a number of programs that are really causing our budgetary problems. Um, so, and then the other concern, I guess, is remember we're coming. We're still coming out of the worst economic crisis of our lifetime. Um, the recession of 2007, 2008, 2009 was by far the deepest downturn since the Great Depression. Um, And the economy has now been moving forward for three years, but it's still, it's sort of like it's in second gear. That's better than reverse, which is where it was four years ago, but it's not where anybody would like to be, and we still have high unemployment, and so now when the recovery is not yet completely solidified we're tapping on the brakes or maybe slamming on the brakes um we are we raised taxes a big payroll tax increase um and then the more we cut spending and raise taxes all of a sudden the more there is the danger that it would toss the economy back into a recession i actually think that if we're lucky that won't happen um But it is a concern and it's one of the many reasons why a lot of folks were were eager to try to get some of the fiscal cliff cliff put off. Mm
3: -hmm. Okay, and so if you were in Washington right now, how would you fix this?
2: Well, if I were in Washington (laughs) and I were a dictator, uh, it would be really (laughs) easy. The problem is that to get it really fixed under our Constitution, you've got to get a majority of the House and a majority of the Senate to agree to the same thing. Um. I do see some hopeful signs in the uh budget that House uh, House Budget Committee Chairman Paul Ryan, the former Republican vice presidential nominee, he released his budget just very recently and Patty Murray of the Senate Budget Committee, a Democrat, she released her budget. They're way far apart in a lot of places, but they're not as far apart as they once as they might have been. For instance, the Ryan budget does several things that would make it easier to make a deal from here um it accepts the tax increases that went into effect on january 1st it doesn't say we're going to try to roll those back that's now sort of a done deal and it it accepts much deeper cuts to defense for better or worse Um, You know, if you're a hawk on military matters, that's a problem. But if you're looking to solve the budget problems, that's probably good. Uh, So that the difference on defense spending between the two sides is negligible. Um, The difference on on taxes and how much to cut domestic spending programs is still very large. But it's not as big as it used to be. And I like the fact that President Obama is on this charm offensive. He's going and having dinner and all (laughs) that kind of stuff. We need but ultimately we we need the, the 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 middle of the american public to assert itself because right now we're being driven by the by the wings by the edges um and that is that has led to this series of uh, failures in washington
3: do you think it is possible to get that body of the plane i guess that we're flying on
2: I think it's I think it's definitely possible. In fact, we came pretty darn close. We've come close on a couple of occasions. Uh and I think the sticking point is that the the about half of the Republicans in the House of Representatives are very very strident and and for many of them any deal is unacceptable because a deal by definition, means that you get less than 100% of what you want. And I think there is there is among some, and let's not make it all Republican. I think there's some Democrats who are very reluctant to compromise on, on anything um, as well. Um, so it's not easy. But w- Speaker Boehner and President Obama came close a couple of years ago. Um, everybody knows what the blueprint looks like to get a deal. Um, if we can summon up some political courage, uh, I, th- I don't think it's beyond the, the realm of possibility. I think we've covered many of the most important issues regarding the sequester and uh, but I would say that much remains to be seen. Um, the, the The budgets that came out, the House budget keeps the sequester in place, the Senate budget does not. What we may end up with is some I hope some compromise where some of the most valuable programs uh, are reinstated. I would hate to see things like, um, education support for special needs children or Head Start, uh, on the chopping block. So I hope we can get at least some softening of that.
3: Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming in. We really appreciate your time.
2: You're welcome. My pleasure talking to you.
3: Thank you for joining us tonight on Exposure. Special thanks to our news director, Gabriella Saldivia, our general manager, Aaron Young, and our station manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next Tuesday, I'm Abby Newton for Impact 89FM.
2: Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to
1: Impact Exposure.